if you had Googled a map of South China Sea maritime claims at the end of 2014, including the ones that most of the major papers used, they were all wrong. Um, some of them, like, offensively wrong about what countries were actually claiming. Hello, I'm Olivia Eno, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our sixth episode of China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party by highlighting the work of our friends. For our sixth episode, we're talking about China's pernicious activities in the South China Sea. And I'm delighted to co-host this episode with my heritage colleague, Dean Cheng, who is our senior research fellow in the Asian Studies Center. Dean is a renowned expert on security challenges in China, especially on China's space program, cyber espionage, and the military more generally. So welcome, Dean. Well, thank you very much, Olivia, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, we're so glad to have you. Dean has a long history of working on China. Um, prior to joining Heritage, he spent 13 years at SAIC and the Center for Naval Analyses as a senior security analyst. And prior to that, he spent several years in the government working in the Office of Technology Assessment. In addition to his esteemed career, he received his bachelor's from Princeton and studied for his doctorate at MIT. Dean, can you kind of bring us up to speed on the latest in China's military activities? Um, since for today's episode, we're going to be looking at um, how the PLA's activities uh, have been going on in the South China Sea. And can you also fill our listeners in on what's going on there to set the stage for our conversation? So we uh, have seen the Chinese military engage in a sustained program of modernization uh, for most of the past two decades. Um, for the longest time, that simply meant getting rid of older equipment and introducing somewhat newer equipment. But over the last decade or so, what we have seen is a Chinese military that is now really becoming technologically competitive with the United States. We see first-line Chinese combatants that look remarkably like our own Arleigh Burke destroyers, for example. China now has uh, two aircraft carriers, uh, one that they purchased from the Ukrainians as a whole, but the other that they built themselves with several more uh, in production uh, at their shipyards. We've seen the Chinese Air Force expand to become the world's largest air force, fielding two stealth fighter designs, as well as talk about deploying a new uh, nuclear-capable bomber. Above all, we've seen the Chinese military focus on organizational and doctrinal modernization. So they've shifted from a military that really focused on quantity um, to one that has steadily increased its focus on quality, uh, So, which is why you're seeing equipment that seems to be pretty comparable to that of ourselves and our European allies. Doctrinally, also, we see the Chinese emphasizing, beginning in 2004, uh, the maritime domain, along with the outer space and electromagnetic domains. Um, and uh, these are all priorities for uh, what the Chinese term defending their core interests, which first off is keeping the Chinese Communist Party in power, but also territorial integrity and national sovereignty. That has direct implications for the South China Sea, which China increasingly treats very clearly as national territorial waters. 
Uh, just and finally, in conclusion, we see in the last few months, in fact, uh, for the next five-year plan and a little bit beyond that, the Chinese are saying they want their military to be fully mechanized. Uh, as well as as well as fully informatized or informationized. Really, what they're saying is they want to be at a mechanized sort of of uh, level of uh, tanks and mechanized equipment and helicopters, but also able to use drones and hacking and cyber capabilities, um, so that they will pose a real challenge uh, to any. Um, force that might choose to intervene or intrude, as the Chinese put it, into places like the South China Sea. That's really helpful for setting the stage, Dean. Thank you. It's now my pleasure to bring in our guest, Greg Poling from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Greg is a senior research fellow for Southeast Asia and director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. He received his master's in international affairs from American University and his bachelor's in history and philosophy from St. Mary's College of Maryland. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Olivia. Hi, Dean. Thanks for having me. So to kick us off, can you share just a little bit about the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, also known as AMTI? Yeah, happy to. So AMTI is uh, about six years old now. And the initiative was kicked off to goals. I mean, one was just to bring a lot of this maritime work, South China Sea and East China Sea stuff that we were doing in the various Asia programs of CSIS together under one umbrella. Right. So I, I was doing this from our Southeast Asia team, colleagues like Bonnie Glazer in China. We had folks doing similar work on the Japan chair, the India chair, the Korea chair. And so this created a functional program that recognized that you had similar problems uh, on, on China's maritime peripheries that crossed over our traditional regional boundaries. The second was uh, kind of recognizing the part of the problem, especially in the South China Sea, which was the lack of transparency. We had a lot of confusion both about what was happening on the water, um, what was China building, how was China militarizing, who was right and who was wrong in each of these various incidents that we were hearing about. And also what was being claimed. This is the most contested body of water in the world. And uh, if you had Googled a map of South China Sea maritime claims at the end of 2014, including the ones that most of the major papers used, they were all wrong. Um, Some of them like offensively wrong about what countries were actually claiming. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like there was a real need for the more data-driven work that you guys are doing. Um, Our podcast obviously is very focused on highlighting just those types of initiatives. So can you talk a little bit about the methodology or various methodologies that you're applying to analyze the data for AMTI? It certainly shifted over the years. Um, I think we launched with a mission that was pretty clear, um, but a toolkit that that was pretty incomplete. So uh, for the first year when, when Mira Rapp Hooper was running the program and I was, was assisting from my South Asia team and, and other colleagues like Bonnie were assisting from the China team, it was largely about figuring out how to, to shine a light on, on this bad behavior. And so it partially the first year was spent trying to do a survey of what was actually available to us. And one of the things that was pretty clear after, I don't know, the first six months or so was that we had a, um, had an opportunity, a moment of opportunity in which a lot of commercial uh, remote sensing data, particularly satellite imagery, but also a lot of the AIS, the automatic identification system data that that uh, is put out by companies like Marine Traffic, uh, the price point has come down uh, remarkably. And and at that point, uh, most people weren't aware of it, right? So 
the type of analysis that you could do today using commercial remote sensing data is the stuff that was the exclusive domain of intelligence communities and multinational corporations until a decade ago. So that combined with the fact that China was doing a lot of stuff that was worth watching, especially its island building uh, at, in early 2015, helped helped lead off our effort. Um, for the first probably two years, mostly what we were doing was pulling commercial uh, satellite imagery and, and analyzing it to keep track of China building artificial islands and the Spratleys, China and Vietnam and others uh, upgrading their facilities and militarizing it. And as the island building wound down, um, meaning that China basically built everything that could physically be built on its islands, we started diversifying more into ways to track boats. So some of that's been AIS, some of it's been commercial radar, uh, space-based radar. We've also invested a lot in in GIS and map building, map making. And so we've got the most robust database of maritime claims across the Indo-Pacific that's available anywhere. Um, and that means that when there is an incident, we're uniquely well-placed to, to kind of within, you know, 10 minutes say, okay, here's where that happened. Here's who has a claim to those waters. If it involves oil and gas, you know, here's who, here's which companies are engaged in drilling, et cetera. Um, and that's made, you know, that, that's made our mission of transparency certainly not easy, but a lot easier. Watching, as you folks have, uh, the Chinese so very closely, um, how would you characterize Chinese behavior in the South China Sea over the last several years? Does it seem to have changed? For example, there's been reports that the Chinese are no longer undertaking major construction activities at the well-known islands, Fiery Cross Reef, Mischief Reef. Um, is this true? Or I think in your most recent report, you've indicated that they seem to have shifted to some of the smaller reefs. Are they also doing anything up at Scarborough Shoal? It's useful to think of uh, China's approach to militarization. So um, setting aside the, the broader South China Sea disputes, look at just what they've done on the islands and put that into a series of phases, which was always part of the plan, right? This You didn't build these islands for the sake of building them. There was always a plan to to build, then develop, then deploy, and then, and then make use of them. And so over the last few years, China started moving through these phases, at the end of 2013, December 2013, the first dredging ships showed up at Fiery Cross Reef and launched this island building campaign. China only had seven reefs in the Spratly Islands that it occupied and about 20 in, in the Paracels, but those were pretty well developed already. So over the course of less than two years, China builds over 3,000 acres of land on the reefs that it occupies in the Spratlys, and it adds a couple hundred more in the Paracels. But then it basically runs out of real estate. So by the end of 2015, most of the island buildings done that in the Spratleys finished up in 2016. The last drop of sand that we know of that really went in that was new was in the Paracels in, in early 2017. So for all intents and purposes, island building as we knew it, as we saw on the front page of the newspapers, that's been done for a few years now. And that doesn't mean the militarization stopped, right? After they after China finished building the islands. It started building on the islands. So you saw the completion of all of the air and naval infrastructure, the harbors, the airstrips, hangars, buried fuel and ammunition storage, uh, missile shelters, and on and on and on, especially radar and signals intelligence capabilities, which which has been, I think, the biggest game changer for China in the South China Sea. That is largely completed by 
end of 2017. We haven't seen major construction since then. And that's because the islands are pretty full. Everything one conceivably needs has already been built. And then you moved into phase three, which was deployments. And that really kicked off in in early 2018. Um, We had seen steady deployments, especially fire across before then. But from 2018 to today, it's been a steady drumbeat. Deployments of anti-ship cruise missiles, anti-air missiles, uh, the first bombers and the paracels, first uh, military patrol and transport, and then more recently, AWACS in in the Spratleys. Uh, And that is a pretty serious uptick in the number and types of Navy, Coast Guard, and militia boats who are forward deployed in those islands. Uh, That continues to today, and I'd argue now we're well into phase four, which is use them. Use them for what they were meant to do. These facilities now provide China a a launching pad for more or less permanent operations off the coast of the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia. So Chinese boats are operating a 1,000 miles from China's shores 24 hours a day, seven days a week in places that it was pretty rare to see a Chinese boat just a few years ago. That's really striking and frankly, a little bit disturbing. I mean, it's as though they have a plan and they're following the plan. Um, That being said, uh, a number of the earlier episodes of China Uncovered highlighted trends in Chinese behavior in the economic sphere. And operations in the South China Sea clearly have both economic and as well as military implications. Could you talk a little bit about the interplay of these two uh, based on your research and findings? Yeah, I'm happy to. The South China Sea is definitely not a purely military, um, I mean, or arguably even a primarily military problem. There are military dimensions to it, but there's no obvious military solutions. But it's also not a purely economic problem. And one of the, my biggest um, pet peeves is when you read an article on the South China Sea and the first line is the South China Sea through which $3.2 trillion of trade passes. One, that number is made up. Um, but two, that's somewhat beside the point. Uh, I don't worry all that much about commercial traffic through the South China Sea being interrupted, at least not intentionally by, by either party for a whole lot of reasons, not least because it would be as damaging to China as anybody else, the real economic costs are to China's neighbors um, on fisheries and oil and gas. And so if you're worried about the sanctity of freedom of the seas, the problem in the South China Sea is that you can't secure Filipino fishing rights or Vietnamese oil and gas rights using the Seventh Fleet. Um, All the FONOPs in the world aren't going to help. And what we've seen China do very well and very consistently for at least the last two to three years is ratchet up the pressure on these kinds of peacetime economic activities in Southeast Asian waters. So for the last 18 months, it has become basically impossible to sink a new oil and gas well anywhere in the South China Sea without the China Coast Guard showing up within 48 hours. Uh, If you are a a fisher from a Southeast Asian country, and you go out uh, more than a few miles from shore, there's a good chance you're going to bump into a Chinese fishing boat that's actually a militia boat who's going to get on his state-issued Beidou transceiver and send an SMS to the Coast Guard who's going to show up and harass you. The goal being to make it so prohibitively difficult and risky that commercial actors will no longer even try to operate in the South China Sea. And on the oil and gas front, they're getting pretty close. I mean, Vietnam's offshore oil and gas industry is – teetering on the verge of collapse. They've The only people left are Rilsneft, who's had to back off new drilling. Some Japanese companies who aren't actually drilling, but just holding on to what they have. 
and Exxon, who's going to leave pretty soon. The Vietnamese, uh, the Filipinos haven't been able to drill for Reed Bank, and it's probably too late for them to do that. The Malaysians might be the last ones left in the game, but they're coming under increasing pressure, and it's not clear how long the state-owned company Petronas can keep this up. And so in five or ten years, if you get to the point where fish stocks have collapsed, oil and gas uh, exploration is impossible unless you're working with a Chinese company, then what good do U.S. FONOPs do anybody? Wow. That's um, a pretty stark question. Um, it, it would seem to highlight, in fact, you know, China's sort of broader uh, the success of China's broader approach that they move so many different pieces on the board, all ultimately towards the same strategic end, which would be to dominate uh, the South China Sea. Um, so we're meeting virtually right now, uh, thanks to COVID. Um, has COVID affected Chinese behavior in the maritime space? Uh, has it re- you know, slowed down or sped up? Uh, they're achieving these kinds of strategic goals. This is probably the top question I've gotten all year, and um, it's we're I think we're just now getting comprehensive answers. So for for most of the pandemic, um, people have said, well, "Will we see China use the pandemic um, to ratchet down tensions? Will there be an effort by Beijing to seize the advantage of U.S. stumbles and and you know, gain diplomatic ground by?" by playing the good guy. And that certainly has not happened. Um, if anything, the diplomatic side of this has become much more chest thumping and nationalist. Chinese diplomats have shown no effort to de-escalate incidents when they crop up this year. Uh, and that largely seems to be because Chinese diplomats taking their cues from folks like Zhao Lijian um, are, are trying to compete to act toughest, right? They're speaking to the domestic audience and showing how nationalistic they are at a time of, of hypersensitivity to criticism because of the blowback they've gotten on COVID-19, among other things. That has that narrative has been clear. What hasn't been clear is the actual operational tempo, right? Has have have we just been hearing more about the South China Sea because of this nationalism from Chinese diplomats, or has there actually been more activity? And so last week, uh, my team published a report on Coast Guard patrols where we looked at the AIS signals from Chinese Coast Guard uh, patrols throughout the South China Sea and compared them to a similar report we did last year. And uh, it paints a pretty clear picture. Uh, At most of the reefs around the South China Sea, Chinese patrols modestly increased. At none of them did they decrease. At Scarborough Shoal, there was an increase uh, of over, uh, I forget the numbers, but it almost doubled. Uh, And by mid-year, by July, the Chinese Coast Guard added a whole new patrol route off the coast of Vietnam to harass uh, Vietnamese oil and gas drilling in reaction to the Russian company Rosneft trying to do some drilling last year that really irritated China. So uh, there's certainly been no slowdown on the law enforcement side. If anything, China has seized the opportunity at a time when its neighbors in Southeast Asia are dealing with a pandemic that started in China, who uh, are facing constrained defense budgets and uh, political turmoil, and China has used that to increase its Coast Guard patrols. On the naval side, the jury is still out. We certainly see no evidence that there's been any decrease in op tempo. On the East China Sea side, there's certainly been an incre- increase in the duration of patrols around the Japanese. Uh, we've seen an increase, a very clear and purposeful increase in operational tempo vis-a-vis Taiwan, both around the Pratas and across the Strait. In the South China Sea itself, 
I'm not sure yet. We hope to have a report out maybe next week. And I think what it's going to show is that there's been a modest increase in the public messaging around Chinese naval exercises. But Navy ships don't necessarily broadcast their locations. And so it's much harder to say for sure whether or not ship days, you know, days spent out in the South China Sea has increased for for China. Uh, Could I follow up just real quick on that? You said that there's been a significant doubling around Scarborough Shoal. Did was there that kind of precedent before construction began down in the Spratleys? Uh, is this perhaps presaging um, land reclamation activities around Scarborough, which the U.S. has said in the past could be a red line? I don't think so, but I'm not prepared to say no. Uh, so Scarborough, uh, for listeners who might not be familiar, Scarborough is, is not part of the Spratly's Paracels. It's about 120 miles off the coast of Luzon, the Philippines. It was under Philippine administration for the better part of a century. Uh, it was considered American territory before that. In 2012, China seized effective control of the shoal. It has never built a permanent facility on it, but it has maintained a constant Coast Guard and militia presence around the shoal every day for the last eight and a half years. What that usually has meant is a small Coast Guard ship tied up at the mouth of the lagoon. There's only one channel that gives access to and from the lagoon Scarborough Shoal. And then patrols of usually a couple of, of fishing trawlers who are working for the militia and maybe another Coast Guard patrol or two who operate within a couple miles of the shoal, uh, occasionally harassing Filipino fishermen and occasionally letting them approach basically idiosyncratically, right, at, at, at China's whims. Um, in 2016, early 2016, China seems to have tried to bring in some barges of sand and begin construction of a, of a facility. And that was dissuaded by uh, pretty strong signaling from the Obama administration, including reportedly President Obama pulling Xi aside at the nuclear security summit that year and saying the Scarborough was, as you said, a red line. Uh, but Philippine officials and U.S. officials continue to believe that China eventually intends to build something at Scarborough. What I think's happened this year is that the number of boats maybe hasn't increased so much as they've replaced the patrols with more modern uh, CCG cutters. They've become part of the regular patrol route more, and they've begun to broadcast AIS more often. And the reason that they broadcast AIS is because they want to be seen. It's an explicit signal of Chinese sovereignty, right? So it's not just that they're there. It's that they're there and they're shoving it in the nose of the Philippines. We're going to shift gears here a little bit. Um, I'm curious, we've seen sort of a, a trend in talking with previous guests on this podcast that there are some sort of unique challenges at play when it comes to collecting data on China or about the Chinese government's activities. Um, are there any challenges that you think differ from traditional data collection when you're at work doing the AMTI analysis? Yeah, so looking at the at the types of data that we've tried to collect and build out, um, one of the fundamental problems is the purposeful lack of clarity about Chinese claims and activities. So, uh, you know, we as I mentioned at the top, we've built a robust database of maritime claims. Every country from the Maldives to the U.S. is included. Um, China has maritime claims that are both ambiguous and inconsistent with maritime law. 
And that's been the case for many decades, but it's only become more so since 1998 when China officially baked in the idea of historic rights into its maritime laws. And so when you ask China, well, what exactly are you claiming in the South China Sea? They'll say, well, I mean, we'll tell you what we're claiming at least 200 miles from our coast. And we're claiming all these islands and reefs. And then we're basically claiming whatever else we feel like on that day. Um, and if you ask somebody, well, where, you know, where is the nine dash line? Well, there's no coordinates attached to the nine dash line. Um, the nine dash line is whatever China needs it to be that day. And so all of that, all of that makes the idea of mapping Chinese claims kind of uh, uh, inherently contradictory. You can't do it. And so, in fact, our, our response to that is on our maritime claims map, we map out China's territorial sea. It's EEC, it's continental shelf. And then we just slap the nine dash line down and say, we don't know what the heck this is. China doesn't know what the heck this is. Any Chinese academic who claims to know what this is, is really just telling you their best guess because there is no ch official <laughs> Chinese definition of its maritime claims. That's one major problem. And that kind of infects everything, right? You don't know where China's oil and gas blocks are necessarily because they're not quite as transparent as others. You don't know what, you know, China's historic fishing zones. It's got these maps that Hainan will put out for fishermen that seem to change from time to time, and nobody knows quite what the rationale is for their activities. When it comes to actually tracking Chinese actors, um, one of the biggest problems is that China operates the world's largest paramilitary force at sea. And so the vast majority of Chinese state actors in the South China Sea are not Coast Guard or Navy. They're uh, guys who are um, operating on fishing trawlers who don't actually fish. And so they don't broadcast AIS. Um, they're not in uniform. It's not apparent that you're looking at a militia boat when you just spot one in a satellite image. That makes tracking them difficult. Uh, one of the solutions we've come up with is, is you can, I mean, you can tell when they're in large clusters. So when you spot 95 boats tied up next to a Philippine held outpost, and they're there for a month and they never put their nets in the water. That's a pretty good sign that they're getting paid to do something other than fish. But when you see a single boat, it's an enormous challenge. And I mean, not just a challenge for, for AMTI. This is a challenge for the U.S. Navy, for the Philippine Coast Guard, for the Japanese, who have to look at every single Chinese fishing boat and wonder whether or not it's really a fishing boat. That is certainly going to make intelligence gathering easier for the Chinese as well as harder for us. And that brings us to... The next issue, which is, of course, the Chinese view of foreign think tanks as essentially foreign intelligence gathering operations. Um, <laughs> perhaps that's because the Chinese use their own think tanks that way. So what kind of reactions or responses from the Chinese government has AM, uh, MTI received? How are you seen by them and how are your reports treated? It's been um, an interesting ride, you know, over the, the last five years or so to see what does and doesn't irritate uh, Chinese officialdom. Beijing never really seemed to mind that much when we were publishing high-resolution satellite images of island building. I mean, I never got any official complaints. Uh, they would often say that we were over-interpreting these things, right? But they never denied that, uh, you know, a, a missile shelter was a missile shelter or a, a hangar was a hangar when we published those photos. Uh, the things that have irritated Beijing the most have been, um, well, one was in the run-up to the 2016 arbitration award uh, that the Philippines won against China. We started public. There was an effort by China to uh, launch a what, what basically amounted to a kind of a worldwide disinformation campaign about the ruling, arguing that it was illegitimate. It had been bought and paid for, and all the judges were bought and paid for by Washington and Tokyo. And so every single 
uh, Chinese diplomat worldwide was told to try to extract a statement from their host government to that effect. And so you started seeing Chinese uh, daily press briefings from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs where they would stand up and wave a paper and say, we have here the names of, you know, 70 countries who have said that they support China's view that the arbitration ruling is, is invalid or lacks jurisdiction or what have you. And AMTI started tracking down all of those reports and asking officials and, and running basically just a Google Doc on our website that said, no, that's not true. Here's like the only countries who have sided with China. And, and I think by the end, they got up to in the neighborhood of 30, almost entirely from a single Arab League statement. And here's the 56 countries who will side with the Philippines. And that really irritated the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, the, the local, I think it was a Reuters uh, reporter in Beijing, started asking them like every morning at the daily press briefing. They'd ask Kwa Chunying or whoever, hey, AMTI yesterday said that you actually only have this many people. And they got progressively angry at that. And that's because that, <laughs> you know, that, that, that struck directly at a, a disinformation campaign. They didn't want to be contradicted. And so that was problematic. The other one that's really irritated Beijing, it seems, is, is all of our work on the maritime militia. Because the entire point of the maritime militia is it's the deniability that it grants, right? If you start identifying specific boats and specific boat captains and specific deployments, then the militia is no longer valuable, or at least not as valuable. So when we published a large report at the beginning of last year, where we had done a six-month report looking at uh, a combination of, of satellite images, radar, AIS, uh, VIRS, which is light detection, every you know all these layers of the onion to determine exactly how many of these boats really were fishermen versus how many were militia, and we published our findings. Within two months, there were more op-eds from Chinese state media and Beijing-friendly academics around the region attacking that. And then we had gotten on all of our satellite imagery analysis work for the previous four years. Wow. Greg, we're, we're going to have to get those links from you and, and uh, link to those reports so that our listeners can check them out for themselves. Those sound really powerful and, and definitely seem to get a rise out of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, many of our listeners are, in fact, a part of the policymaking community. Some are um, from the legal community, the business community, and are thinking about um, how your data might apply to their own work. Um, but what areas of China's maritime activities do you believe are under-researched or perhaps merit some additional attention from folks in those communities? Yeah, this is a tough question because it's, I mean, quickly, the idea of, of studying Chinese um, maritime strategy, maritime capabilities is is a field within its own right. Um, and so there's plenty of folks doing this. I don't, so the two that in my wheelhouse that I, I wish we had more data on and that I'm certainly going to be looking for more data on is, is one, um, continuing to, to peel back the layers on, on the maritime militia and finding better methodologies to both identify not just the, the militia, because that's that's a game of whack-a-mole that's kind of hopeless, right? There's there's no way that you're going to chase down each of these fishing boats and do something about it, but identifying the onshore networks that support them. Because the only way that you can get a grip on this kind of paramilitary activity, as we've tried to do with the Russians in Ukraine, is by going after the business and military elites who support that illegal activity and targeting them for public outing and hopefully financial sanctions. So to do that, you need to identify the captains and companies who built these boats, the subsidy regimes, the local government officials, the fishing associations that give them a, a veneer of legitimacy, and then start targeting those people for international reputational costs and hopefully financial sanctions. 
you know, that that's a long-term prospect. But at the end of the day, if you want to disincentivize the use of this illegal paramilitary force, you have to do it onshore. You're, you're not going to be able to do it with on the water enforcement. Um, the second thing is I, this is not as if people haven't written about this, but we need a much clearer idea of what China's actual um, red lines are and how they're shifting, by which I mean, if our goal as an international community in the South China Sea is to incentivize Beijing to reach some kind of compromise with its neighbors that we can all live with, it's still not entirely clear what that compromise is, right? And and I, I would argue the space for it is shrinking because for the last 20 years, there's been a ratchet effect in which Chinese claims have grown more excessive. China's claims today are not the same claims that China was making in the mid-1990s. And the longer that goes on and the more it's clarified in Chinese legislation, the harder it will be for any future Chinese leaders to walk that back. At the same time, our continued delay shrinks the space. You know, it, it, those, those two things mean that um, the, the space for what we will find acceptable as an international community and what will preserve international law and what it is politically possible for leadership in Beijing to accept is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I really like um, that you're focused on using the research and turning it toward action. Um, I know in my own work, um, targeted financial sanctions is so critical for holding individuals in China accountable for human rights violations. But I like thinking about it in the context of the maritime space. And I think targeted is so key. Being able to name those individuals and entities is incredibly powerful. Um, and I think that flows really nicely into my my final question for you, which is just, um, you know, you put out these great reports, um, but what action or what additional action rather would you like to see in response to the findings of those reports? And, um, you know, what are some of the most effective ways that policymakers can really make the best use of your data? So one is, I, I guess the, the starting point for all of this is just getting back to talking about the South China Sea as a top tier problem in Asia in the way that we as an international community very briefly did in 2016 in the run up to the Philippine Arbitration Award when it was on everybody's lips and it was in every paper and it came up at the G7 and the UN, it wasn't just in the ASEAN meetings. That's number one. And so when we publish this stuff, I hope it doesn't kind of disappear into the academic ether or get reprinted in Philippine and Vietnamese press, which it always does, but that it actually has an impact in Washington and Canberra and Tokyo, and maybe more importantly in European capitals, which have been the mm -hmm. ones who have really put their head in the sand since 2016 on this issue. Because if, if it's not that, then you are never going to rally the amount of reputational cost it would take to convince Beijing that it's better off compromising. Because the only way this gets resolved in a way that, that we should all be able to live with is if China determines that its behavior in the South China Sea is undermining its larger goal of being a global leader. If, if Beijing is treated the way that the Russians are um, or that you know Iran is, and, and it becomes quite clear that you can be a bully in Asia or you can be a leader in, on the global stage, but you can't be both at once. So that's one, just talking about it. Two, I mean, I've touched on financial sanctions. I think at the end of the day, this has to be part of it, but they do have to be very carefully targeted. And the problem thus far is that we keep going after companies who built islands five years ago and haven't done anything since, um, mm. which are not, I mean, that's not what sanctions are for. Like how, 
how does CCCC dredging get these sanctions off? They've been placed on the entity list. They can't go unmake the islands. So targeting the people who are actually engaging in illegal and illicit behavior in South Tennessee today, which are mainly fishing militias, oil and gas operators, survey ships, et cetera. Um, and then I guess the, the third, and this is not directly related to our research, but I hope our research helps, helps to kind of incentivize this, is a reinvestment in the U.S. Uh, relationships in Southeast Asia, particularly the alliance with the Philippines, which remains dangerously brittle, and the emerging uh, security relationship with Vietnam, because this is not a U.S.-China problem. And if you lose the two frontline states, the game's over. Well, thank you, Greg. It was really helpful to hear from you, to learn more about China's lack of transparency in the military space and to hear about how CSIS is really, I think, um, you know, pushing back on that lack of transparency and and trying to uncover some of the more pernicious activities um, that are going on in the South China Sea. And all of your recommendations are are really helpful and worthwhile uh, to think through. I have no doubt that our, our listeners found that as helpful as I did. And for those who are eager to learn more, I'm actually really excited to announce that Heritage has launched a website for our China Transparency Project. And I promise I will include Include the link to that new website in the show notes. Um, the website should be a very useful resource to our listeners who are eager to learn about the data-driven research that's being done from, by folks all around town, all across the globe on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, thanks once again to our listeners for tuning in to China Uncovered, a podcast dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. In two weeks from now, we're going to be bringing you another episode featuring a special guest to close out season one just in time for the holiday season. Um, it's hard to believe that this will be our uh, last episode of 2020, but I think we're all looking forward to 2021 and, and hopefully a brighter future. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We look forward to seeing you next time. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.